get this right. They're trickier than they look. All right, our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 19. The Holy Scriptures read, Then children were brought to him, that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples then rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Short text today, but not short in terms of application, that's for sure. Let's pray, if you would, for me, with me and for me as we look to God's word today. Father, we ask that we would come before you today as humble little children to receive your word, not as arrogant, proud adults who think that we have all the answers, for we surely do not. We fall short, and we fall short daily of who we are called to be in Jesus Christ. And so we praise you for the grace and mercy that's provided for us, which comes through the perfect life of Jesus that was lived, the life that we should have lived, and the death that he died, which is the death that we should have died and deserved. So, Father, we just ask that these broken sinners today would come together and leave rejoicing and worshiping you and your great name for what you do for us. Father, I ask that my words would be your words as revealed in your written scripture. They would be my thoughts, my opinions. But that through the preaching of your word today, that your spirit would use these words, your words, that you would change your people for it, the glory for your glory, that you would help us to see the beauty of the risen Christ and recognize that all these things of this world are worthless by comparison. So we ask that the things of the world would grow strangely dim in the light of Christ's glory and grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Once upon a time, in a faraway land, a young prince lived in a shining castle. And although he had everything his heart desired, this young prince was a spoiled, selfish, and unkind prince. Then one night, an old beggar woman came along to the castle, looking for shelter from the winter storm, and she offered this young prince a single rose in return for shelter from the bitter cold. Repulsed by her haggard experience, the young prince sneered at the gift and turned the old woman away. But she warned him not to be deceived by appearances, for beauty is found within. But then, when he dismissed her yet again, scoffing and laughing at her, the old woman's ugliness melted away to reveal a beautiful enchantress. The prince then tried to apologize, but it was too late, for she had seen that there was no love in his dark heart. In response, as punishment, she transformed him into a hideous beast and placed a powerful spell on the castle and all who lived there. Ashamed then of his monstrous form, the beast concealed himself inside his castle with a magic mirror as his only window to the outside world. The rose she had offered was truly an enchanted rose, which would bloom until his 21st birthday. And if he could by then learn to love another, before that last petal would fall, the spell would then be broken. But if not, he would be doomed to remain a beast for all of eternity. When it comes to love, who knew that the old story, and it's not actually Disney's, by the way, they just took it, uh, the old story of Beauty and the Beast had so much to say. 
For when it comes to love, we all naturally extend love towards those whom we find lovely, towards those whom we find attractive, towards those who we think have something to offer us. And because of this, we all naturally then withhold love from those whom we find unattractive, those whom are weak, those who are small in stature, those who at first appearance seem to have nothing to offer us, for this is the way of beasts in a beastly world. And the way this works is that we see people's value in terms of what they do, not what they are. And though the beastly kingdom of our world loves in this self-serving way, the love of the kingdom of heaven calls us to love in a radically different sort of way, in a way that loves others not for what they can do, but for what they are in the eyes of God. And that is a massive difference. It's a love that calls us to love the unlovely, a love that calls us to love the weak, the powerless, the helpless, the outcast who are despised and ignored, those who have little or nothing to offer us. And so in Matthew 19, we find the disciples of the kingdom once again returning to their beastly ways. It's a habit by now. It's happened over and over again. For what is happening here in Matthew 19 is the disciples are seeing people in terms of their external worth, not their intrinsic value before God. This is completely backwards when it comes to the kind of love that kingdom citizens are to portray. The love of the kingdom calls us to love others regardless of their power or position. This is something the disciples failed to do. How? When they saw parents bringing their children to Jesus to have him lay his hands on them and bless them and pray for them. And so when they saw these positionless children being brought to Jesus, they responded by attempting to shoo these unimportant people away from the important King Jesus. And yet, this was exactly the opposite of what they were supposed to do. It was the exact opposite of what we saw a few weeks ago in Matthew 18 when it comes to how we are supposed to deal with children. We're supposed to love them. And that doesn't just apply to children who are young in age, but children of all ages. And we'll get into that in a moment. But the love of the kingdom is a love that loves others no matter how big, nor no matter how small they might be. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Matthew 19. We're just going to look at verses 13 through 15. And in these verses, we are going to see the kind of kingdom love that Jesus is calling us to. For the love of the kingdom cares for others in three ways, and here they are. The love of the kingdom cares for others by seeing them, by bringing them, and third, by emulating them. When it comes to our world, every single one of us is born with beastly hearts who see others in a self-serving way. What do you have to offer me? That's how we view things. What do I mean? I'm talking about seeing them in terms of their external capacities, not their internal God-given worth. And that's just how it works for all of us. It's the default position. It's how we view people. We value them based upon what they can do, not what they are. And what they are, the Bible tells us, are divine image bearers of the eternal God. And here's the thing. If you get that wrong, and boy, has history gotten that wrong, it results in a hellishly beastly nightmare. And so many have got this wrong. For example, when it comes to human rights, the atheist philosopher J.L. Mackey once argued that human rights and values were based upon capacities, what they can do. Here's what he said. It would be more reasonable to think of the right or claim to life as growing gradually in strength. Do you see what he's saying? Mackey's saying that 
He's, he's specifically referring to the unborn, right? We grow in our capacities as we age, and the more capacities we have, the more worth we have. That's what he's talking about. The more stuff you can do, the more valuable you are. But if Mackey is right and people's value is based upon their external capacities and not their intrinsic, internal, God-given worth, then if what they have to offer us isn't up to par, we're perfectly right to dismiss them, to shoo them away, and to treat them in beastly ways. And this is the way of our world. And this is precisely what humanity has done throughout all of human history over and over again. I give you, for example, case in point, how about the Holocaust? Let's just talk about the Jews who were killed in the Holocaust. Six million Jews murdered. Why? Not because the Germans decided that they were humans and had value and worth and they didn't care. No, they concluded they didn't have value and worth based upon their external qualities, and so they exterminated them. How about abortion? I looked up yesterday at 64 million deaths of unborn children in the U.S. alone since Roe v. Wade was passed. How about we look at the soaring rates of assisted suicide as our elderly are being euthanized in, in vastly, incredibly growing rates? Why? Simply because their capacities have fallen below the appropriate threshold. They're no longer up to, pie, up to par, so they must be removed. The truth is, when a society drops belief in the imago Dei, and that's simply a Latin term that means the image of God, the results are hellishly beastly. This is why scripture calls us over and over again not to believe that way, to drop that kind of worldly, fleshly thinking and instead to treat people in terms of their internal worth before God, not their external capacities. But this kind of, this kind of thinking is completely upside down for us. It completely goes against the grain. It, in fact, it goes against our very nature. And because it's so ingrained in us, even as Christians who have a new nature that is competing with that old nature, we still have to battle this stuff. We still have to fight against it because we so quickly forget that we are loved by God, not because of our good qualities, but because of his. That's a, that's a major difference. And so we must constantly be reminded that we are to see people in terms of what they are, in terms of who they are in God, in terms of the way that God sees them, not the way that man does. And yet so often we don't. Even as Christians, our relationships, and we know better, but even as Christians, our relationships are often based upon our old beastly-natured understanding. When someone sins against us, whether that be our spouse or someone at church or a friend or a family member, do we do as Jesus instructed in our last chapter to forgive them seven times seventy? Or do we hold it against them because they aren't up to par in their external qualities? When that young, rich, outgoing family starts coming to our church along with that quite older, uh, clearly poorer, socially awkward, slightly irritating person, who do we flock towards? Who do we greet? Who do we naturally invite over then and get to know? The one who has the superior qualities or the one who has a social drain upon us? Because the truth is, some of us are social drains. I think the reality is, we realize that we are just like the disciples who shoo away the weak. Sure, maybe we don't outright shoo them like we would a stray cat that we're trying to scare off, but we basically might as well. 
in the way that we behave towards them. We don't make any real effort to talk to them, to greet them, to ask them questions about their life. Maybe if they'll listen to me and about all the things I've got going on, I'll talk to them, but I don't really care to hear about their boring, pathetic, weak life. We don't make any effort to include them, to get to know them in a meaningful way. And why not? Because we're not seeing them as God sees them, but as man does. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. And man naturally looks at people, or things even, in terms of how it can serve them. And what does the Bible call that? It calls it idolatry. See, what we naturally do is we try to get things and people to rotate around us, to worship us, to make us and our lives more enriched. And this is the opposite of how we're supposed to function. We're supposed to love God and then out of that love our neighbor as ourself. And so the love of the kingdom is completely backwards compared to the love of this world. When Jesus sees the disciples acting this way, what's his response? He's not happy about it, is he? Not even a little bit. In fact, in Mark's account, the word that Mark uses to describe Jesus' response here is indignant. And this is a word that means he's not just angry about it, he's very angry about it. He's upset. He's deeply disturbed by the unjust actions of his disciples. Which is sort of comical because, as we said a minute ago, here they are, yet again, completely failing to apply what Jesus taught them in the last chapter about children and the need to have childlike humility. They're not thinking that way at all. They're thinking, oh, these people aren't very important. They need to be very important like us to approach Jesus. But what did Jesus say in the last chapter? He said, no, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must have childlike humility. You must be like this child. And then the next chapter, here they are, turning away children. It's kind of funny, but also sad. But the truth is, are we any different? (laughs) Not really. How often do we know truth and then two seconds later go and do the exact opposite thing? How about all the time? And so when Jesus sees these disciples behaving in this beastly and unjust way, he responds indignantly towards them in a fierce, rushed to the defense of the helpless sort of way. Which for the record is exactly how the Bible calls us to respond over and over and over when we see injustice. We're not supposed to stand there idly by and do nothing about it because if we don't, if we don't care about seeing the helpless being oppressed, the truth is that we don't have the loving heart that the kingdom calls us to have. We're still functioning off of the old beastly nature. Think about it. Indifference towards another person's suffering. If you see them suffering, if you see injustice happening, and you're just like, yeah, whatever. How unloving is that? How hateful is that? It's about as hateful as it can get. And so when we see racial injustice, when we see the poor being marginalized, when we see the weak being taken advantage of, it should cause an indignant response within us. Not a self-righteous manly anger that makes us think that we're so much superior over them. No, 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 no but a godly, indignant, righteous, zealous anger that causes us to rush to the defense of the defenseless. An anger that is fueled out of love, not hatred. See, our God is a God of justice. 
who cares deeply for the oppressed and the marginalized. And for that, I would take you to the small prophets, but we don't have time for that today. But go to the small prophets and look what God says to the people of Israel when they are not taking care of the marginalized, when they are oppressing the poor. He says, I don't want your sacrifices. Get out. It reeks. And it's the case because God cares deeply for the oppressed and the marginalized, and so should we. This is why the book of James says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit the widows and the orphans in their distress and to keep, one, keep oneself unstained from the world. So do you see what James is saying? He's not saying that the path to pleasing God means signing up for just more and more social work. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying if you do enough of, the, of, enough of that, God's going to accept you and bring you to the kingdom. Nor is he saying that the path to pleasing God involves charity. He's simply saying that the path to pleasing God is a transformed heart that cares for the marginalized and the poor, that cares for those who have nothing to offer us, to care for those who slap us, in which then, out of our changed heart, we humbly turn the other cheek in order to serve them. And so make no mistake, if you try to do this without having the transformed heart that you need to have, you're going to fail. If you're not seeing people the way that God sees them, you're going to fall. You're not going to be able to do this. You absolutely aren't. So how does God see them? Well, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. How about Romans 5.8? But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so as 1 John 4.19 says, because of this, we love because he first loved us. That's the motive for doing what we're talking about doing, for loving the unlovely, for loving the marginalized, for loving the oppressed, for loving the poor. And that's not just economics. It could be the socially poor, the outcasts, the weird people who are hard to talk to. If you want your heart freed from the beastly curse of self-love, you must come to see the love of God powerfully displayed for you upon the cross. A cross, I remind you, where Christ came to suffer and die, not for his friends, but for his enemies, as we just read in Romans 5.8. People who despised him, people who hated him. He went to a cross and died there, the prince of glory. He was the glorious one who was beauty itself, who became disfigured, who became hideously torn, ripped apart. Why? Why did he become beastly disfigured? To save beastly disfigured people and to make us glorious, to make us beautiful as he is. And when you see that, when you see the great love of Christ for you, Despite your heart, which hated him, despite your heart, which too internally cried out, crucify him, crucify him, it changes you to start seeing others the way that God sees them. And so that's what it takes to break the curse upon your beastly heart, leading you to want to go after others and bring them to the same love that you've been given. And this leads us to our second point. The love of the kingdom cares for others by first seeing them, but secondly, by bringing them. 
In verse 14, after Jesus rebukes the disciples out of his righteous indignation, he then instructs them to bring the little children unto him. Do not hinder them, he says. It's, it's, two, it's a twofold command. Bring them, don't hinder them. And so too, church, are we called to do the same thing? Now in this passage, Jesus is speaking about Jesus is speaking about little children, but as we've discussed, it applies to little children of all ages. But still, this absolutely does apply to little children. And so we don't want to overlook that point either. For as Jesus' disciples, it's our mission to bring children to him and to not hinder them from coming to him. So I want to talk to the parents for just a second here. How are you doing? Are you bringing your children to Jesus Or are you hindering them from coming? And make no mistake, those are the only two options. Those are the only two options. You can either bring them to the love of Jesus, or you can bring them to the love of this world. You can bring them to love Jesus, or you can bring them to love this world. That's the only two options. In our children's Sunday school, they have been learning about Moses' teaching from Deuteronomy 6, which shows exactly how to lead our children to God. And I want to read this uh, verses 4 through 9 here, which reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this passage tells us that we, along with our children, are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all of our strength. Okay, And then it goes on to tell us exactly how to do this, what this looks like. Look at verse 7. Notice in verse 7 there, it doesn't say we do this by going to church once in a while, and that checks the box, and then our kids will grow up to love Jesus. It's not going to work. That's not how this works. We don't do this by getting them to say a sinner's prayer and then say, sweet, they got their fire insurance. Let's go do our thing. What does this passage say? It says, you shall teach them diligently which simply means all the time, in all places, in all ways, every possibility, every possible situation is an opportunity to do this, is what this is saying. This is why it talks about all the signposts and all these things. And a lot of us do this. We put up scriptures in our home. We have reminders. This is what it's talking about. It simply means do it all the time. And for those of us who are a little slow at picking up on what this means, uh, look what it says here. It says, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. It's, it's all situations, which means teach them to love the Lord all of the time and teach them from life situations. I like how one pastor put it. He said this, this is good. All life, all of life must become a blackboard, a black, I can't talk. All of life must become a blackboard upon which you teach the truth of God. This means, parents, that when your children sin and you discipline them, you use that opportunity to show them the love, the grace, and the mercy of God and their need for the gospel of Jesus. If they keep sinning over and over and they've had to be disciplined in the same way over and over and over, you come along and you say, why do you think you keep doing this, Johnny? I don't know. 
Well, I think it's because you're a sinner who needs a transformed heart. And look at Jesus here who can transform that heart for you. Even our discipline is an opportunity for gospel conversations. When your child is being bullied, you teach them what it means to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. And you do so from a framework of the gospel where our Savior did just that as he loved those who hated and persecuted him, even to the point of death upon a cross. It also means that when tragedy comes, not if it comes, but when tragedy comes, and it certainly will, that you teach them about the absolute and total sovereignty of God who was not surprised for even a second by that shocking diagnosis, by that phone call that brought you to your knees. You teach them in that moment, as the psalmist said, for whatever you do, I will love and worship you. No matter what happens, you use life's blackboard to teach them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. Because if you don't, you are hindering them and they're coming to Jesus. So fathers, are you leading your family in family worship? Scripture commands you to. Are you taking time to teach them the word of God and to pray with them? Or are you thinking Sunday school once in a while will do that? It certainly won't. And if you think that way, you are neglecting your responsibility. While mothers certainly don't get a free pass on this, make no mistake, it is the fathers who bear the ultimate responsibility for this. And if you neglect your responsibility, you are hindering your children from coming to Jesus. And if that's the case, I would suggest changing your behavior immediately or start looking for a nearby lake and a millstone that fits your size of neck as Jesus talked about in the last chapter. Because it would be better for a giant millstone to be hung around your neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. All of life is a blackboard upon which we teach these little ones. From what they watch, to what they play, to who their friends are. All of it. And if we don't see it this way, if we don't see our children's great need, then we will hinder them coming to Jesus. So often we can easily overlook children and forget that they are just as much a part of our church as the adults. And because of this, we can easily forget to practice the one another passages, which we've been learning about in our Sunday school class as the adults, shameless plug. We can forget to practice these one another passages towards them, can't we? We can forget to welcome them, which means knowing them by name. We can forget to care for them, which means asking how they are doing and if there's anything that we can do to pray for them. Basically, we forget just how much God loves the little children, all the little children of the world. And when we do that, we are hindering, we are failing to bring them to Jesus. And here's the thing. This is a responsibility we're all called to, every single one of us. I was thinking about this, and it dawned on me as I was studying this passage that there's people in this church now that I grew up with who absolutely had a hand in bringing me to Jesus. They absolutely did. People who warmly greeted me at the church I grew up at by name when I was just Lewis's age. People who showed a genuine interest in me, who made sure that I knew for certain that I had a church family that loved God and loved me. It wasn't until inciting this text that I started to realize just how much of an impact that that has played upon my own Christian faith. Now, maybe you're here and you're not a parent. 
Maybe you're here and you're a grandparent or you're single, or maybe you're here and you do have young kids. Either way, make no mistake, you have enormous potential to help bring the little ones of our church to Jesus by showing them a love that cares for people no matter their capacity, no matter how small. So as a church, we're called to take this task seriously, to see the children of our church as God sees them and to treat them as he calls us to. Because not only does Christ attribute this as loving and serving towards him, which Scripture talks about even a glass of water given to one of these little ones in his name is going to reap reward. But there's a whole other aspect that we don't have time to talk about. But do you realize, church, sometimes Scripture tells us in Hebrews, we entertain angels without even realizing it. I don't pretend for a second to know what that fully entails. But there's a lot at play here. When we see children as God sees them, We rejoice over their salvation no matter how young they are. And we don't come along and say, oh, you know what? You're too immature. You don't quite understand. You need to know all these things. Until you read the Bible, we don't set up all these extra obstacles in their way that they need to conquer before they can come to Christ. We don't bar them from Jesus telling them that they are too young or immature. And why not? Because the only thing that is needed is childlike faith. I want to talk to the children in the room for just a minute. Children, the last couple of months, many of you have seen baptisms in our church. And I want you to know something about that. You don't have to be a grown-up to be baptized. You know what you have to be? You have to be a follower of Jesus. And what does that mean? It simply means you've come to realize that you're a sinner who has offended a holy God. It comes to mean that you've repented of your sins. You've went to Jesus and said, I can't save myself. I repent of my sins. I turn and I trust in you to save me, to do what I never could do. And then when you've done that, you too can be baptized and go on then to take part in regular communion as a member of this church. Not a second-class citizen of this church, but as a full member of this church who is appreciated and loved just as much as the pastor, deacons, and teachers, whoever else we might look at and put on a pedestal. Children, no matter how young you are. And so I'll just say this. This is something you're interested in. Go talk to your parents. Have conversations with them about this. If you say, you know what, I don't know if I've trusted in Jesus, go ask your parents about this. They'll take you probably to John 3.16, as we read a minute ago, and show you just how simple this is. Let the little children come unto me. Do not hinder them, Jesus says, for such belong to the kingdom of heaven. Can I just say how much I love the fact that we practice family-integrated worship here? Absolutely do. I wouldn't change it for a second. Yes, sometimes it gets a little noisy and distracting, but never in my mind do I question if it's worth it all. As Jesus says, let the little children come unto me. And make no mistake, the corporate gathering of God's people for worship is one of the primary means by which we bring our children to Jesus. It's not the only way, but make no mistake, it is one of the most important ways by which we do so. And so when it gets a little noisy, we rejoice that there are children here in the first place. And when we see a struggling parent with a perpetually noisy child who is at an age where they ought to know better, we lovingly and graciously come alongside them, not to scold them, not to beat them up, but to lovingly help them work on the discipline of their home. It's truly a beautiful thing when this is done in the context of the gospel, when it's done in the context of love and grace, is it not? 
In verse 15, it tells us that Jesus laid hands on them. And most commentators understand this to simply mean that Jesus blessed them and prayed for them. This was the common practice. People back in that day, they would bring their children to religious leaders, and they would ask that religious leader to put lay hands on them and bless them and pray for them. And so here is that same thing is happening with Jesus. And what a remarkable picture this is for what we are called to do for our children. See, here's the thing. Even parents, even if you do family worship every single day from the time your child is born until they turn 18 and move out, even if you bring them to a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church and you only miss it when you're gone on vacation or sick, none of that alone is enough to bring your children to Jesus. It's not. Why not? Because the truth is, without Jesus' hands touching them and supernaturally changing their beastly little hearts into heavenly ones, it's not going to do a single thing. It's going to make more well-behaved devils is what it's going to do, which is not what we're after. And so parents, certainly do all of those things we just talked about and looked at in the book of Deuteronomy, but never forget for a moment that Christ is the healer. He's the one who changes our children's hearts. Don't become prideful and start boasting in your parenting. Certainly try to be a good parent. Try to do what Scripture calls you to do, but recognize that Christ is the healer. And until his hands are laid upon your children's heart and transforms it, no amount of Christian discipline will ever make that unredeemed heart redeemed. And so we must regularly bring our children before Jesus in prayer, asking him to lay his healing hands upon them. And we can rejoice in knowing that he does and will. And why? For such belongs the kingdom of heaven which leads us to our final point. The love of the kingdom cares for others by seeing them, by bringing them, and finally, by emulating them. We said before that even though this passage speaks of children, it really is speaking of children of every age, which means that whether a person is seven or 70, any who come to Jesus with childlike humility belong to the kingdom of heaven. And so we find here an invitation for all to come to Jesus to experience his healing hand upon them. And what is the cost? Childlike humility. That's it. Which means to humbly trust in Jesus just as a child does. You know, atheists will tell you that it's absolutely wrong. They'll even say, some will say it's child abuse to bring up children in the faith because it's equivalent to brainwashing them. That's what they think. But you know something? I was thinking about this, and I actually think they have it backwards. Because yes, children are certainly gullible. No question about that. But I don't think that's the real reason why so many of us come to faith in Jesus as a young age. Why do I think that? Because as young children, the reality is we haven't yet grown up to harden our hearts out of our love of sin and our love of this world. It hasn't set in yet. It hasn't hardened to that point yet. And so when, at a young age, we are presented with the truth of the gospel, its convicting power hits our soft hearts in a strong way. And it does because deep down we know that the gospel is true. Every single one of us does. When we hear it, we can't help but recognize that it's true. It's interesting. When I was in the cities doing security, I worked with a girl who was about the angriest atheist I've ever met. 
And we would sit there and we would go back and forth talking about the evidences, talking about the arguments. I'd read one of her books she recommended, you know, that, back and forth, that kind of stuff. And I learned something very important from her, the conversations with her. Whenever we would drop the back and forth evidential-based arguments, and I would just simply share the gospel, it was almost like the demeanor just would completely change. She didn't come to accept Christ as far as I know, but the demeanor would change entirely. And I think it's because deep down, every single one of us knows it's true. We know we were created by God no matter what we lied to ourselves to, con- to believe in. And she knew this. And the same is true of children who haven't yet calloused their hearts to reject the God that made them. And so if anyone's brainwashed, it's us adults, right? We grow up in a world that hates God, that says, I will not bow the knee. It's a Psalm 2 sort of things. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? It's because they've hardened their hearts and they, will, and they have said in it, there is no God for me. He will not be my king. Deep down, children know the gospel is true at some level as we all do. And the reason they accept it is because the bias against belief has not set in yet. And so atheists have it backwards when they say that children accept the gospel simply because they're brainwashed, for the truth is adults are brainwashed by years of sin that has calloused their hearts against the truth. And yet still, because of the incredibly powerful gospel that we proclaim, so often still do biased, brainwashed adults still manage to come to Jesus with childlike faith. And praise God for that, because it is absolutely a miracle when that happens. And so, church, our mission is clear. We are to emulate little children with humble, childlike faith. For the first time, by becoming a follower of Jesus, and then for the Nine millionth time, as we, through the rest of our lives, continue walking in humility as we faithfully serve him and trust him to keep his promises. So often I talk to Christians who don't share their faith with others because they forget the childlike simplicity of what it takes to share the gospel. They think that they need to have written an apologetics book to do it, and I can tell you that's certainly not the case. Anyone Absolutely anyone, including a five-year-old, can share the simple gospel message of salvation with even the most staunchest of atheists. Yes, we certainly should grow in our understanding of the faith. Yes, we want to understand and we should study apologetics and read books on these things. There's no, no negative of doing that. But we must never forget that all of this is for naught if we forget the power of the gospel if we forget the power of Jesus' healing hands, which alone can transform an unregenerate heart. Only the power of the gospel can change beastly hearts into heavenly ones. And so, church, we have our mission. We have our marching orders. And it's a mission to bring the little children unto Jesus, no matter how young or old they are. Do not hinder them, Jesus says. So the question I have is, Are you bringing children, no matter their age, to Jesus? Or by your life and negligence, are you hindering others from coming to Christ? These are the only two options. And as we bring people to Jesus, we can confidently know that his healing hand awaits to save all of those who humbly come to him in childlike faith. In a moment, I'm going to pray. We're going to do something a little out of the norm here. We're going to ask our children to come up for our closing song, Jesus Loves Me, right up here. They're going to help us sing it and remind us of the simple truth of the gospel. 
which we all need, which even a five-year-old can understand. And then when we're done, we're going to pray over our children, for them and for us as a church, asking God to bless them and the parents and the rest of us as we endeavor to bring the little children unto Jesus. Father, we thank you for this text. And Lord, we ask that as a church we would do these things, that we would bring them to Jesus, for such belong the kingdom of heaven. So Father, I pray for the one here who has never come with childlike faith to trust in the only Savior, the only healer, who can transform our beastly hearts into heavenly ones. Father, I pray that for them today would be the day of salvation, that they would know they don't need to walk an aisle, that they don't need to make their life perfect, that they don't need to do all of the list of good moral things before, that they, before they can be healed. All they must do is turn from their sin and place their eyes upon the Savior with childlike faith. So Father, I pray for that person that they would do so today and that they wouldn't remain quiet about it, but they would go around and tell all of us here so that we can rejoice with them just as the angels in heaven are doing whenever a child comes to faith. Father, I pray for our children who live in a dark world that desperately tries to pull them away from following Christ. I pray for the parents, Father, that you would help them to run their homes in a way that brings them to Jesus and does not hinder them from coming. I pray for the fathers, Lord, who bear the ultimate responsibility here, that they would not neglect it. For ever since the fall, that is our temptation. It's to neglect our responsibility that you've given us to practice servant leadership within our homes and within the church. Help us as a church now to bring this gospel message to children of all ages for your glory and our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Children, if you would come up around the piano here and you can help us sing our closing song, Jesus Loves Me.